All right, Colin, how are you doing today? Good. It's uh, it's good to be here, Harry. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited. We're upgrading the podcast. Uh, I think it's our second uh, one doing Riverside, so better audio, better video, and supposedly a better guest. So I know uh, you uh, <laughs> are about to intro Kyle, and we've got big expectations for him on today's podcast, so I hope he's ready. All right. It rides on all my shoulders. I don't know what this says about the about the prior guest, but I'm <laughs> well. A little bit you of know, uh, both. How about that? So one of our former guests, or actually our first guest we've ever had, uh, Jack Greco, was how I met Kyle. So that's uh, how oh, cool. we uh, came to be here. Um, so, well, Kyle, let me uh, read a little bit about you, and uh, we'll go from there. Um, but everybody that uh, doesn't know uh, Kyle is a hands-on go-to-market advisor investor with particular focus towards optimizing the commercial machine of two-sided marketplaces, vertical SaaS, and consumer businesses. Um, he's very focused on you know, leveraging kind of capital-efficient growth marketing strategies um, and really uh, doing that well to make sure that companies can be successful in the long run. Um, he's, you know, first nine years of his career after going to law school, uh, questionable decision. He helped to build a commercial machine at a first-generation legal tech startup uh, called Axiom Law, uh, backed by Benchmark, uh, which exited to Premira, uh, which is a big PE firm that also acquired Ancestry, where I worked um, in 2019. Um, and from there, he has been an active angel and spent his time as an operating partner at two funds and co-founded a business called Cap Gains, uh, which is still growing today and uh, which leverages tech to automate tax incentives for startups and VCs. So I'm excited to dig in on a couple different topics, uh, go to market, uh, but also on the operating partner side, because we've never talked to someone uh, on the podcast uh, that does that. So we're, we're intrigued. What is that? Uh, so we'll go from there. Harry's going to ask you a few, uh, few questions to start. How, how did Colin do on your bio, Kyle? He did pretty good. He did pretty good. I'll take it. Okay. All right. So uh, off to a like good start. So let's uh, help the audience. Yeah, I'd say eight, nine, maybe nine. Uh, let's help the audience get to know you a little bit, Kyle, and your experience with investing and angel specifically. And we'll we'll use that as a, a jumping point. So rapid fire, uh, how many angel investments have you made? I made 16. 16. How many have you made this year or do you plan to make? I have made three already this year. I am close to another. I might surprise you with this answer. I try to not be too deliberate as far as my check rating frequency, because mm -hmm. I think if you get stuck in, I need to write a check per quarter or two checks per quarter, I need to deploy. Do mm -hmm. you waver on your standard of what great looks like as far as the way you're evaluating an entrepreneur or a product or a market? And so I try to be somewhat opportunistic as far as the deals I see and the founders I meet. And if I think someone's world-class, I'm going to write them a check and want to get in bed with them. And if I don't think they're world-class, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do so. So there could be quarters where I write five to seven checks and there might be quarters where I don't write a single one. Uh, and, and it's one of the benefits of being an angel and not working out of a fund is you have that self-determination yeah. to pick your check writing frequency. Interesting. Yeah. Well, one other like thing that. I would say is like, obviously funds are slowing down, not so much at the pre-seed level, certainly mm -hmm. not in AI, which is as hot as climate was yeah. last year or, or, or cloud or SaaS, whatever the case may be. Um, growth stage is all but turned off. But as you're seeing valuations come down, Funds are a little skittish about making new investments and calling capital. Valuations and entry points are getting really interesting. And like funds will talk a lot about, you know, price could be a mental trap and betting on outliers is the only thing that matters. But entry point does matter. And if prices are coming yeah. a little bit down, it's an interesting time to, to be active. So I certainly 
um, I, I don't think I'm I'm going to slow slow my roll here if if I continue to meet great founders. <laughs> Very cool. Well, yeah, no, I'm excited to uh, dig into sort of some of the differences, good and bad, of uh, being an angel versus being a fund, uh, you know, investing out of a fund. And you obviously have some great experience there. So, uh, a couple more quick questions. What's your average uh, check size for these angel checks? It's come down. Uh, my first angel check I ever wrote was over 50 grand. And you have, when, when you write your first check, no matter how much success you've had as an operator in any facet of life or business, you have a little bit of imposter syndrome. And, and for me personally, mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, I don't want to be the guy with the smallest check on the table. No one's going to take me seriously. Yeah. And so I deli deliberately went against my plan was to make X amount of bets at Y valuation. And I wrote a check much bigger, which, of course, I regret, even though that, that, that position had been <laughs> marked up. So today, my check size is anywhere from five grand to about 30 grand, depending on my conviction. Cool. Um, so the, the check size has come down. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of spreading your bets. And a lot of angel investing is... This doesn't sound sexy, but a lot of angel investing is time in the game and shots on goal. So a, a lot of small, a lot of small bets, I think, is the best way to play the game, and that's the way that I do. Cool. Yeah, I think uh, almost every angel we've interviewed has basically said their first check was too big. So if you're looking to make your first check, maybe <laughs> cut in half. Just golden rule of thumb. Uh, what type of startups do you look for, and what stage? I have played a little bit across stages, but. I would say a third of my bets have been pre-seed or seed, and I haven't mm -hmm. gone later than Series B. Um, so that's from a stage perspective. I am I'm very focused on the business model, more so than industry. And is the business model one that I understand and one that I can add value to? Yeah. Um, and then me particularly, I come from a go-to-market background, sales and marketing. And so I'm looking for a go-to-market motion that I understand intimately well and that I feel like I can de-risk de in small part. And so I bet across industries, I bet across countries. I've made, what, three bets now in Germany. So I've, I've jumped through those hoops of the power of attorney and, and the notary and the apostle and the ridiculousness of investing in, in countries outside of the U.S. But um, So I, I've really spanned the spectrum, but, I, but I'm really focused on business models I understand. I'm really focused on commercial motions and go-to-market motions that I understand that, can, that I can slightly move the needle because there are elements in, in here, I think we get into this, you, you want to angel invest so you can hit a mm -hmm. double or triple or maybe a home run, but there are other reasons to get in the game as well. And one thing that I don't think people talk about is if you're an angel investor and you actually add a little bit of value and it tends to be introducing customers or better yet, introducing world-class people they can hire, then it becomes a really rewarding game. And yeah. if you are dumb money that writes a checks and, hey, I hope to get a return 10 years later, it's not as fun to be involved, at least for me personally. So I have an eye towards like, what can I actually help? And then that comes back to like, where is my expertise and what do I know? So that's that's my focus. I, I think we can all relate that just throwing money into something is not nearly as rewarding as helping the founders shoot their shot um, and, you know, go big. Uh, I think that's uh, something that's pretty clear. Um you know, I'd like to dig in more on this uh, go to motion, uh, go to motion, go to market uh, motion. You know what? You know when you look at Harry. Actually, let, let's start here. What what is go to market? I think uh, Harry wants to know. Um, GTF. What is it? Wow, you're just assuming that I don't know what it means. <laughs> but all right, <laughs> we start out. There was some pre conversation problem. here. Go to market. <laughs> Let, let's put it in simple terms because I hate when people describe anything in business or investing using a bunch of jargon or, or business school sounding language. Mm -hmm. Your go-to-market motion in the context of any specific business is what is the sales motion or what is the marketing motion 
that best fits the need of your company relative to the to the audience to whom you're trying to sell. So what go to what what a what a, what a win in go to market motion is not, and I see this over and over again. Harry, call it. I'm sure you guys too. Is I am a product first founder. I'm a tech first founder. And so I need to bring in a lot of muscle on the commercial side or sales or marketing and partnership side. So let me just find the best person I can find who has experience in this industry. And they're going to bring their playbook from their prior company. It's going to plug and play in my new startup. So why does that not work? Well, if they had a, a top-down enterprise SaaS account-based selling motion, you're trying to go bottoms up, like you have the wrong model for your business. And what's interesting that you see more now in the data is the shortest tenor in a C-suite of venture-backed companies is the CMO, which is less than a year. And the second shortest tenure in the C-suite for venture-backed companies is the VP sales, which is like less than a year and a half. Hmm. And the reason why these typically fail is, well, two reasons. One, if you don't have a great product market fit, it's easy to throw the commercial guy into the bus and they just can't sell. But it's very tempting to find someone in your industry who has won and think they can just drop in their playbook and not do the hard work of testing various prospecting cohorts to figure out who's most receptive to what you're doing and what's the most efficient and low friction motion to bring them your product. And it's not that the go-to-market fit is not that dissimilar from product market fit. It's a slog. It requires mm -hmm. testing a variety of techniques against a variety of different audiences, and many of them aren't going to work. And there's not a magic trick here in my experience. There's not a unicorn here. And there's it, it in my experience, it's typically not let's hire a magical person that can plug in plug in um, and play their own playbook, you have to go through the motion of testing and experimentation to find the playbook that wins in the context of your company. And that's the go-to-market so, motion. And that's how you get go-to-market fit. So just to double click so we can get to the original question, you know, as you as you look at founders, because you were saying you do early stage investments typically, and you know, this is something you care a lot about. What are you looking for in the company and the founder, their strategy? You know, what what makes you feel like, oh, I found a world-class founder with something magical here when it comes to Yeah. I, well, well, first, I mean, you take a step back and, and you can you can think and analyze to yourself, how do I stack rank product and product risk relative to market and market risk, relative to founder, founder risk and technical risk and so on and so forth. And I'm of the belief the earlier stage the company, the more that you should bend towards the caliber of the founder and the later stage the company. I mean, I, I you know, won't, won't ever say a CEO or founder is fungible, but if you pull out Satya from Microsoft and put in a different person, like they're probably going to be successful. So mm -hmm. the more mature the company, the more I think you need to lead into a market and a market becomes more viable and you have a better chance to really wrap your head around the size of that market. As you mentioned, I play mostly in early stages, pre-seed and seed, some series A, I've done a couple of B deals, but I'm mostly early stage. And so I am predominantly focused on the founder. And that means trust first and foremost. Do I trust that individual? Do they seem like a high integrity person? How do you how do you suss that out? Have they over the period of time when you're getting to know them, do they do what they say they're going to do? Right? Do they give you investor updates? So trust and integrity is 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 at the top of the list. Secondly, it's it's grit and it's perseverance. I mean, being a founder is incredibly hard. I've done this myself. It is an emotional roller coaster. We don't talk a lot about this, but being a founder typically means your mental health goes to shit, right? <laughs> it is very destabilizing. You're taking a very small income. You're playing an equity game, which is 10 years long. And some days you sell a customer and I have product market fit and I'm the next Elon in the next two days. It's like, what am I doing? My, 
My spouse thinks I'm making the wrong career choice. The father-in-law is asking me why I don't work at IBM. Like it's it's a roller coaster. And you know, most founders fail, like statistically speaking, because it takes too long to get product market fit and they give up. Okay. And product market fit isn't something that happens in a couple months on average. Right. It's like if you look at the bell curve on product market fit for the winners, not to mention those that have given up, it's like somewhere from eight months to a year and a half. So it's a slog. And so long went answer. But the second thing is like who just has the grit and the perseverance and is so hell bent on making it happen. They're going to continue on an irrational journey down a path that, that is not for most people. So that's the second thing I would say about a founder. Third thing is, do they have an insight against an industry? What is that insight? How do they derive it? Do they feel that pain themselves? Are they a product first founder? I mean, it's helpful to know. I mean, new opportunities are typically born with someone with industry experience, spots, a cluster of technologies coming together, and they're willing to make that bet. And so do you, are, and are you aligned? Do you, do you share their conviction around whatever insight they have against an industry? And if, if you're a venture guy, it's an insight against a large industry with venture scale returns. If you're an angel, you might have different um, profiles as far as what you're comfortable with, as far as returns. And then the fourth thing, and this is probably also under talked about, a key reason why founders win and why startups win comes down to talent. And a huge part of what founders do, I, I, I'm a college sports fan. I love college football. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are, um, if you are Coach K or if you're Nick Saban, and the most important thing is recruiting, getting great people on the boat. And yeah. so your ability to recruit world-class founder, and that is storytelling, that is people believing you're a winner, uh, believing you're a leader, that massively de-risks things. And this isn't sexy to say or sexy to do, but oftentimes what I've seen is if you have someone who's worked in that industry at a company that was a winner and is well thought of, they start a new company in that industry, if they have the ability to tap into the talent base of that previous company that all comes with industry experience, that is a hugely de-risking factor. Yeah, and so sure. I, I think that talent attraction, being a talent magnet is is something that I'm hyper-focused on. So yeah, th those, I really those are the like, quick four things I would, I would highlight. Yeah, I really like the uh, college sports and recruiting analogy. I played volleyball in college. I coached, you know, girls volleyball. And I would always find it funny, right, that like a lot of the best teams had the best players. Shocker, <laughs> right? And so you could have like any coach there. And, you know, sort of like you said, sometimes like obviously a good coach can help. But a lot of times, you know, the things that are most important are the people or, you know, the folks on the team. So I think that's cool. And your experience as a founder, I feel like gives you a pretty unique edge there. So talking about that journey from founder to angel investor, or, you know, how, how did you kind of get into angel investing? And it looks like, you know, you're still a founder, I guess. Um, so how do you, how'd you get into it? And like, what did the timeline look like, I guess, as far as some of your different roles? Yeah, well, one point of clarification, I was, I was a co-founder of a company called Cap Gains, and I'm, I'm going to re resist the herb to give a, a shameless plug about that company, but I, I'm no, no longer day day in that company. And okay, the cool. CEO of that company is, is tremendous. Um, and that thing is growing and profitable and, and profitable. Good name, co-founder Cap, or Cap Gains. I like the name. I don't know what it does, but I, I love the name. So I'm already Great sold. Name. It is, it, it, lever <laughs> it, it lever well, here, here's the shameless plug. I said, I would go for it. It, it. it leverages technology to automate tax incentives for founders and mm. investors. So Opportunity zones, capital losses, and oh, cool. qualified small business stock, QSBS is chief among them. So it allows companies to grow with tax free gains. Back to your question, I mean, how, how did I get into it? So I, I spent the first nine years of my career at a first gen, what I would call first generation legal tech company. It was a two sided labor marketplace called Axiom Law, and it was high caliber on demand attorneys. 
Uh, and that company, when it had an exit, it sold to Premier, which Colin, I think you worked, Ancestry also had an exit to Premier, so small world there. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever Axiom sold, we actually sold Axiom at large, the company, but we also we mm-hmm. also spun off two non-core business units. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, we were actually trying to take that company public. And, and I think the feedback we were getting from investment bankers is we have these exciting non-core businesses that are high growth, but they're eating into the margins of Axiom's core business. So we spun off two of them, one's now called Factor, one's called Knowable. I had two small exits. And then when Axiom sold to Premier, I had a little bit of a bigger exit. And when I got a couple of dollars to my name, I should have, you know, follow follow your parents' advice and put the money into a low-cost index fund. But but what fun is that? And so I started angel investing for the thrill of it. And, and, and also, I think what happens is it's easy to understand that angel investing is long odds and it's probably not going to work. And you have mm-hmm. to be sober-minded and honest about that. But the time that you feel most emboldened that you're going to win and that you might be different, you might be able to find an outlier, is when you just had an exit, right? Yeah. So at that moment... You're feeling like, oh, good. Is, yeah, you're feeling good. <laughs> you're feeling super confident. So uh, that was, what, 2018, 2019 period is when I okay. started. So for the past five years, I've been in the game. Got it. And what was uh, what were you expecting when you got into angel investing? Were you like, oh, this could be a cool way to make some money? Or were you more, you know, sounds like maybe realistic about it and that like, oh, this maybe isn't the best way to make money, but, you know, we'll be fun. I can help some people. I've got a lot of knowledge. Or was it a combo of a few things? Yeah, it was a combination of a few things. I was excited to lock arms with other investors that are in, that are in tow for the first deal. Number one. Number two... Yeah, I mean, you have the expectation of a return mm-hmm. and you develop conviction around a founder and their market opportunity and their technology and their product and the competitive dynamic. And so there is an expectation of a return. Um, the third thing, I, I guess this this relates to the first point, but the third thing that was readily apparent at the time, which I now believe even more strongly to be true, is most of the money in venture-backed startups in the private capital markets are going to come from VCs more often than not. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's related and is true is most of these VCs don't do anything to help the company. All of them talk mm. about their value add and all of them talk about how they're differentiated. And yeah. most of them are full of shit. And it's not because they're bad people and it's not because they don't want to help. And it's not because they're liars and they're misrepresenting themselves. But if you're managing a fund, you, you're raising money from LP, you're managing LP relationships, you're trying to find and scout the next deal across your thematic focus that keeps you up at night that, hey, I might miss the winner in the field. And then you're sitting on 10 or 15 or more boards. And that's a full-time job. And you yeah. don't have time to be in the weeds and really help to nail that next VP of engineering hire. Like they, most of them just don't. But if you're an angel, if you're not sitting on 15 boards or raising for your next fund or managing LP relationships or any sort of the operations that are commensurate with venture, you probably have more time to get involved in help. Okay, so then why mm-hmm. does that matter? Why is that interesting? If you're the guy on the cap table who actually is moving the needle, and did introduce a couple of, of companies or did introduce a winning piece of technology, or, or frankly, the best thing you can do that's actually the most helpful is lean in with the companies hiring and help them hire world-class people, Paired back to our earlier point about recruiting. And when you're seen as the person who's doing this, if you're co-investing with interesting people, angels, former operators, or investors, it's then very easy to build a relationship with anyone on the cap table because like this guy, Kyle, this guy, Colin, this guy, Harry, He's really helping my money to win or he's helping to de-risk yeah. this investment. Of course, I'm going to take a meeting with him. And so one of the views I have, which I think is probably somewhat contrarian, or at least it goes against 
the conventional wisdom you also you oftentimes hear VCs pontificating about, which is like, do it by first principles, do your own due diligence. Like, I think that's totally bullshit. Like, you should pay attention to what other investors think about the deal. You should mm -hmm. pay attention to what other investors are in the deal. Because if you're in the deal with them, you have a great chance to build relationships with those people. And then you have access to their deal flow. Yeah. And if you have a VC in the deal and they're like, Kyle Richards is the single most useful person on the cap table, that is a great brand to build for yourself. And then I'm looking at the best investments in that VC's portfolio and I, I would love an introduction to that company. And that's a yeah. real dynamic that wins. And so yeah. that's the third thing I think that I thought to be true, which has proven to be an even stronger element that I anticipate at the outset. And like something I'm really focused on to this day, five years later. Yeah. And I think it's almost kind of has to be true for you to be a successful angel, right? Because obviously, you know, if companies are raising millions of dollars and, you know, you're in the $5,000, $10,000 check range, right? I mean, it's literally just do the math. It's a tiny percent of the overall funding required, right? So there has to be a reason for you to be on there and it has to be beyond your money, right? There has to be a reason for you to be on there. And so if I'm writing twenty five dollars or $50,000 $50, checks, you know, even as valuations have come down, and the ability to raise big numbers has largely gone away and people are just reading extensions or, or down rounds, whatever the case may mm -hmm. be. A founder is incentivized to squeeze in an angel if they really bring something to the table. Because my $50,000 check is a lot different than a $5 million check as far as moving the needle towards their fundraising progress. And so then it begs the question, like, okay, then Kyle, how do you get into the great deals? You need to be in the great deals to make a good return. And I think there it's about building a brand and it's got to be a niche, right? Like yeah. maybe you founded a unicorn company and you become something, a celebrity, and then it's just helpful to, um, yeah. to, to get you into the business. But for Kyle, the that's the easy us, way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, being that I haven't founded five companies that have all gone public and I'm not a yeah. celebrity billionaire, you know, what's really helpful is, you know, Kyle's thing is the go to market motion. We're finding go to market mm -hmm. fit. And if I have a company that needs to be strengthened there, or more specifically has a founder that's currently focused on, okay, I'm going to call him. Or, hey, mm -hmm. Kyle has a legal tech background, both operating and investing. So if I have a legal tech deal, okay, let me think to call him. And so for any aspiring angel investor, I think the question to ask yourself, you need to improve your deal flow and your deal quality. What do other people think about your brand? And what is the impetus for them to pick up the phone and call you and say, here's a deal that you need to be a part of because it's going to be a rising tide. So I, that, I think that's a really important thing to think about as, you, as you're building a brand on the investing side of the table. So this is the point in the podcast where Harry tells you that you can be the go to market guy. All of our longtime listeners right now, Kyle, are like, I guarantee you they're thinking in their head. They're like, oh, Harry is going <laughs> to about to brand Kyle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it has a, it has a good ring to it. I, I would have to guess that the, the go-to-market guy, that hashtag has been taken by someone. And I might shorten a, this one, though, Colin. I might say go-to-market guy, like instead of the go-to-market guy. I think oh, just go-to-market guy might be better here. Go to my, okay, I'm going to buy that domain as soon as we yeah, get we'll, it. We'll, 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 talk, we'll, we'll talk about it. It comes it with the here, podcast. Definitely. We buy you the domain. You know, it's like it's just a thing. You get now. domain and swag just to, you know, keep, keep pushing you in the right direction. But you said something interesting, Kyle, that it's about branding yourself as, you know, the go-to-market guy or Colin is, you know, well-known for marketplaces and, you know, other – you it sounds like you also have, a, a you know, the background in legal tech, right? So uh, 
there's that component. But what about something you said earlier, too, that other VCs, maybe founders are saying that you're really helpful, right? It's like, I guess you have to be someone that's well known, and you have to be providing a lot of value. Or how do you kind of or does like one come hand in hand with the other? Like, how do you think about those two things? As far as other investors and other people in the cap table perceiving your perceiving your value, that mm-hmm. actually has two elements to it, like roll up the sleeves and actually move the needle and actually help, but then be shameless about broadcasting what you're doing. Yeah. Most of the deals that I'm in, there is a Slack group that investors are a part of, or there's an email thread, or if nothing else, investors will respond to a, a winning or, or not winning monthly update. And you can figure yeah. out who's on the cap table. And... I think that the best CEOs, well, they all do their monthly investor updates. You have to as part of hygiene, just the best ones do. But I think the best CEOs activate their investors. And, and the, the very top of that update is, here are the ways in which you can help. I'm hiring for this role. I'm trying yeah. to refine this sort of product, like whatever the case may be. right? And so it's, it's the call to action of how investors can help should be readily apparent as a part of the investor update. When you've done something that actually helps the specific area that the founder called out, reply on that email or ping someone yeah. in Slack. That not only builds your brand, which is helpful for future deal flow, maybe that inspires someone else in the cap table to roll up the sleeves and do something to be helpful as well. And I think the and smart so, founders all do the shout outs at the end, right? Where they sort of highlight, okay, Kyle intro me to this customer. And it's like 100%. just such a no brainer, right? Because we're all such competitive people, right? It's like, oh my God, Kyle is like providing a ton of value. Like I got to get off my ass and do something now, you know, as an investor for this next founder, I need a shout out. Like I got, I've gotten three shout outs in a row. I need to get that fourth, right? So it's like, you know, the, I think the savvy founders these days are definitely, you know, not only making those ass, but, you know, then kind of, you know, giving people a little credit for, no, that, for doing that's, that. that. Yeah. That rings totally true in my experience. And Harry, let, let me more specifically answer your original question. So mm-hmm. how do you brand yourself while also just rolling up the sleeves and helping any way you can? Your brand is what gets you into deals for the first place. Yeah. Like that's why people mm-hmm. think of you. Yeah. If you actually add value and just opportunistically find ways to be helpful, that's then that's then how you build relationships with people on the cap table to find other deals in their portfolios. So my brand is around improving the sales machine, improving marketing efficiency, finding go-to-market fit. But my ability to access deals is largely based on folks with whom I've co-invested with. And then I scan their portfolios and what are the most interesting things that they're also involved with. So I actually think they're, they're two divergent things. Yeah. No, I really like that actually kind of gives me an idea that I should keep an eye out on, you know, I get dozens of investor updates from all the companies I'm advisor investor in. It's like, I should keep an eye out for those names that are sort of continually coming up and founders are saying, Hey, you know, Kyle has provided a lot of help or, you know, X, Y, Z person. Cause it's like, those are the t- probably the types of people I want to develop relationships with. Right. Cause I totally. really like what you said, like the brand gets you into deals. Like I sell people a lot, like, Oh, you know, if you have rideshare gig economy, you know, like I'm the guy. Right. But they don't know if I'm actually going to work for them once I'm in the deal, right? So like that second piece is kind of where, you know, it's a little less public and you maybe have to know, you know, be on the investor updates or talk to founders, right? I think yeah. that's spot on. I, I, I know I'm like, maybe uh, I just I just love seeing my name on the, the email of like, <laughs> hey, Colin, thanks for helping. So uh, I'm shameless <laughs> yeah. about that. And, and when, you, do, to, and when yeah. you do something and they don't mention you, you're like, <laughs> oh, knife in the knife in the gut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one's tough. Um yeah. The, so just like wanting to dive in a little bit more on the like, well, so one funny thing about like helping versus not helping or just writing a check is like no one brags about, man, they gave me really good money. 
right? Like the money's equivalent. Like, you know, as Jack said, it's just like money's a commodity, right? And it's so true. And like, no one's like, man, he gave me a really good 50K or like that was a really good 5K. It really made the difference, right? It's all equal once it's in the pot. And I think the point, you know, as you build your brand, the differentiator is like whatever lift you do for the founder such that they want to talk about it. And, you know, it's really, it's, and I think that's the thing that's not commodity, right? And that's the intangible, the brand piece is like your, whatever you do that is memorable and makes people want to talk about it. And I think a good indicator is if people are not talking about what you did, you probably didn't do enough to move the needle, right? And yes, I know you need to like self-promote, but as a good indicator for most people, like if you did something and someone isn't like really thankful for it or like calling it out, then I would rethink what you're doing and how you can do it better. Um, but so, yeah, Colin, um, I thought for you yeah. on that point, like, you know, all, all money is green. And I, there's actually, there's, there's not an alignment of interest. So I've, I've been on both sides of the table. When you're raising money as a founder, the very best investor when you're fundraising is someone who writes you a check very quickly. That's the best thing that can happen. Because fundraising is slog. It's a full-time job and it takes you out of operations. It just does. And yes, the best founders parallel track and they're doing five things simultaneously. But fundraising is unbelievably time burdensome and unbelievably time intensive. And so the like the brand name firm, that's hopeful, the celebrity investor, whatever. Like if you get a big check with one meeting, that's a hell of a lot better than someone that did deep diligence for three months. As an investor, is that the most hygienic approach? Like probably not. You probably do want to get to know the founder. So you actually have a little bit of a little bit of tension there. Um oh, yeah. so with the the all money is green philosophy. And the other thing I would say is if you invest in a startup, there's no obligation to be helpful. You know, you can write a check and not do a goddamn thing. And if that company turns into a really big outcome, like you're a smart person, you know, it, how many, how many VCs write a check into a winner and didn't do a damn thing. And, you know, they hit an outline and return the fund. Like at that point, they're raising a much bigger number for fund number two with management fees. It just made them rich. And none of the LPs they're pitching an institution or endowment saying, what did you actually do to be helpful? You know, like it, <laughs> yeah. it, it doesn't, it, it really yeah. doesn't matter. Um, but, but like, I think as an angel, or if you're really trying to build your brand, or if you're really deliberate about trying to build your deal flow, like that's some of the intangible value that you get mm-hmm. if you actually get. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I think a bunch of different ways to skin the cat. I think where the rubber meets the road there for where LPs care though, is like, are you getting into good deals? Right. And the question yeah. is, is just picking and not helping. Can you ride that coattail forever? Right. Um, so I, on the subject of helping and doing, uh, you're an operating partner, uh, and we haven't talked to someone that is in that role. We've talked to scouts, we've talked to, you know, GPs, we've got anything and everything around it, but not anyone that actually is more on the operating side. So first off, what is an operating partner? What what does the day to day look like? Um, and tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, Totally. So an operating partner or or now there's like proliferation of a platform team. A platform like mm. that's that's the nomenclature for portfolio focused resources. And Andreessen you know, made it famous to have an army of people that are dedicated to portfolio support. And now you can say it's a little bit smoke and mirrors, and it's really about like helping them to win the deals and showing, you know, look at my my armory of people and all the resources I'm gonna bring to bear on your behalf. And maybe they don't actually dig in, maybe they do. Um, but but Platform teams and operating partners, they differ from GPs or investment partners in the sense that 
the on the investing side of the house, it is industry mapping. It is developing a thesis, your thematic focus. It is um, making sure that you have a sense of where outlier deals might come from in your industry or your focus and diligence and model and everything that comes along with trying to ensure that you get the outliers from whatever area you're covering. Hmm. And that's a big job and that's a full-time job. And I think that comes with endless anxiety. If I'm focused on legal tech or I'm focused on ed tech or I'm focused on SaaS or climate or like whatever the case may be, it is a full-time job to feel like you're talking to everyone and you're actually getting money in the right ones. And what that doesn't allow a ton of time for is all the things that we've just been talking about, which is how do you actually be helpful once you have money in and once you're on the cap table? And that's where operating partners come to play. Operating partners tend to be disproportionately focused toward portfolio support. They come in a few different shapes and sizes. Um, I'll, I'll oversimplify here a bit, but you have generalist operating partners. Oftentimes, this is former founders, um, former CEOs. And the idea of a generalist operating partner is a one-stop shop. So Harry, if you are a you know series A founder and a fund wrote you a check, they have an operating partner, you develop a rapport and relationship and trust with that person. Mm -hmm. And you call him or her at 10 p.m. at night, whether it's a finance question or a tech question or a product question or a customer that's about to churn, whatever the case may be. And then I would say in, in the past 10 years, as, as venture dollars have exploded, you now have more specialized operating partners. Some of the bigger funds will have specialized operating partners. And in that case, you see not just CEO and founder alumnus, but you have the former CFO who's an operating partner you go to for finance questions and the former sales guy or gal you go to for the commercial questions and you have a former chief product officer go to, to product mm -hmm. questions. So there's a few different variations, but the theme is being that the investing team and the general partners are so focused on what's the next deal and how do I yeah. ensure I find the outlier? Um, the, the operating partners, okay, now how do I both maximize the potential efficiency and effectiveness return of the company? And then how do I try to de-risk the various components of the business of the deals we're already in. So that, that's what I define in the, the kind of rules yeah. I've had. Got it. How does it differ from, say, a scout? Because to me, it sort of sounds like you're kind of this industry expert. You're looking for deals. Um, and, you know, I mean, I guess like presenting, I don't know, the actual mechanics, if you want to walk through that. But uh, uh, what, what do you see as the differences? Well, a, a scout, I almost think of as an extension of your analysts or your associates mm -hmm. that are just trying to implement your deal flow. Got it. You know what I mean? Where, where again, an operating partner, you know, maybe they maybe they source deals just because mm -hmm. they have networks and oftentimes they've been successful in business, but they're not pounding the pavement trying to uncover new deals. It's what are the deals it. that are already in the portfolio and Got across it. that portfolio, how can you increase the chance of success? Mm -hmm. How do you de-risk various elements of the business? Exactly. Got it. So you're sort of more like you're actually working at the firm and kind of providing that support and and that help. Um, and it must be a good gig because you're now an operating partner times two, right? <laughs> I am. I've been an operating partner at a couple different places, and it's it's a fun role. I mean, it is. Yeah. It's probably more akin to an operating role, and, and maybe even a consultative type role, where you're in the weeds with a number of different companies. It just depends on uh, the breadth of a portfolio. Um, but that makes it really fun. And if if you join a fund that you think is betting on great companies, and if you don't have that belief, I'd you know, ask you why you joined that fund. But if, but if you're in a fund and you believe in the companies, to get to work hand in hand with the management team across a number of different bets, I think is a really thrilling thing. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, it sounds cool to me because a lot of founders, a lot of operators, you know, I think that lifestyle, like that grinded out, you know, like we talked about all the shitty parts about being a founder earlier, but obviously <laughs> some people love it, can't get enough of it, right? I'm not really that person, but some people <laughs> love it and can't get enough of it. Um, and this seems like the kind of good middle ground where you like get a little bit of the VC, you know, kind of working in the day-to-day and the operations, but you still get to retain the stuff that like really drives you. So for those who might be interested interested in becoming an operator partner, what advice uh, do you have? What do you suggest? Like how might they tactically go about it? Yeah, well, I I have two thoughts for you before I directly answer that question. I would say I would be cautious to not overly glorify an operating partner role. Mm. The truth of the matter is regardless of previous fund performance or regardless of the prestige and brand name at any fund, most of the portfolio is a mess, right? Startups are really hard. Success is not a straight line. Every company has their shit. They just, I promise you, they just do. I've never been involved with or seen a company in the private capital markets that did not have all sorts of hair on it and all sorts of problems. And as an operating partner, you're supposed to dive into those problems alongside the management team. So it it feels like it's a cushier gig or it's a safer gig or it's a portfolio way to help a bunch of different people. But in some ways, if you're actually active and you're actually helping and moving the needle and helping to de-risk, you're, you're multiplying your set of problems that you're supposed to help out with. And they're very, if, if they weren't hard, the management team just tackle them on their, yeah. on their own accord. Very true. Um, so I, it's a yeah. rewarding role, but it, but like like anything else, it's, it's challenging and has its ups and downs. Back to your question, like how do you actually get that role in the first place? It's easy to identify a fund that has a similar focus to where your expertise might lie or just funds that are in your network, you can go ahead and just start helping. Yeah. Right. And it it, it harkens back to what we were saying at the outset of the call, like how, how can you actually be helpful? Hmm. The two things that actually move the needle the most, the thing that I think is most impactful, help companies hire world-class people or, and this, this isn't glamorous, but secondly, like you can effectively be an SDR, right? Reach out to understand what's their ICP what customers are in their sweet spot and introduce customers to, to, not to the CEO, but put to sellers on the team. And when funds see that you're willing to be helpful to start just for free, then they're going to create introduction to connections to other portfolio companies. And then when you have a track record over a period of time that say, hey, this guy or this gal has been really helpful to the portfolio, the snowball starts yeah. rolling and it takes it from there. So it's 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 getting in the game. No, no one invites you to the dance yeah. in those cases. That's, in my experience. That's actually, just, just start working. You know, it's funny, Kyle. I thought that you were going to have, you know, a good answer for sure, but I thought it was going to be a lot more complex than that. And that makes, I love that answer. And it's also so simple. It's just like find companies you know, or sorry, find, uh, you know, firms that align with what your expertise and then just go be helpful. Like what are the two things every startup or, you know, fund needs help with hiring and making money, you know, getting more customers. Right. And it's like, just go out and do it. And then obviously if you could do a good job and I'm at a firm, it's like, wow, this guy's working for free. Imagine how good he would do if I paid him. (laughs) Yeah, totally. The the other thing I would tell you is you don't want to take the front door in to anything associated with angel investing or anything associated to venture funds. Mm. Those roles are seen as super glamorous right now. It's just, that's just how it is. Like if you're at um, Harvard or you're at Wharton or you're at Stanford business school, you know, McKinsey is not as in vogue as it once was. And, Google is not as in vogue and everyone wants to be in VC. And if you're going to wait for name your pedigreed fund to launch an operating partner role and submit a resume that's in a pool of 850 other resumes, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to get, like just statistically speaking, that's probably not going to For sure. 
right? Yeah. But so how do you take the back door? It's 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 back to what I just said. How many of those 850 people applied just started working and had that proactivity and have been helping portfolio companies for the last eight months or last three years? Not that many people. So it's it's just just get started. No no one's yeah. gonna no one's gonna say, hey Kyle, by the way, you can go ahead and be helpful to this portfolio companies after hours <laughs> on nights and on weekends on your own time. <laughs> You're yeah, anointed. But no one's going to stop if you start doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, that's a, such a key theme that I'm, I'll reiterate. Just people don't invite you to the dance. Just get started. Love it. Yeah. So one more question for you. And, and on this episode, I always like, I always like to tell people like, you don't have to like, you can take risks. You don't just have to talk about the risks, right? Like just go do it um, and see what happens. There's usually a very limited downside to being helpful and to putting yourself out there. Um, yeah. So one last question for you. So if you go back and do it again, uh, you know, with your angel investing journey, what would you do differently or what advice would you give? Smaller check sizes more frequently. It, it, it doesn't sound so glamorous common. to say. It doesn't sound glamorous to, to say, but there is a numbers game aspect to this. And the more shots on goal over a longer period of time equals a greater chance that one of the bets or many of the bets hits in a material way. And it's tempting to get really fired up about a founder, an opportunity in a business. And if your check size in your head was 25K to write a 50 or 75 or 100K check. But again, it, that doesn't jive with shots on goal and time duration. And so like that, that would, that would serve more, more shots on goal. If that means smaller check size, smaller check size, that's the way to win. Awesome. That's a that's a great note to uh, end uh, the first part of this podcast on. Now the fun part, uh, Kyle. We get to dig into two trending Twitter threads. And Colin was late to our prep meeting today, so he may not even know uh, what I'm about to show on the screen. But uh, I think the first one, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull an audible on Colin. He thinks he knows what's coming, but it's gonna be something oh, different. Man. So we'll uh, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, share it right now. And uh, Colin, I'll let you read this tweet since you're gonna also be seeing it for the first time. I think it's kind of relevant to. Uh, what we've been talking about. So, um, oh, actually, let's do this one first from uh, Zara. Can you see it? Not yet. Oh, it's, it's um, not coming. All right. Well, let me read the tweet while it comes. Uh, oh, here founders, we go. what We're is good. the best thing a VC angel or angel investor has done for you other than writing a check? So I think we kind of have hit on a few of these themes. So what do you think, Kyle? And this is from Zara, Zara Nakvi, founder, community at Join Republic. Well, I don't want to take the easy way out and talk about talent or customer introductions. I will say like mental or emotional support to help people navigate through the emotional roller coaster that is being a founder. Mm. I, for me, if I was to answer it, it would be like getting more money, right? Like that, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, you write a check, but bringing how can other you investors. Like, into we wrote an article deal. about this. That's like the money multiplier, right? Can you be that money multiplier yeah. for them? Um, so I feel like one thing that I've heard from a lot of founders is, yeah, being there. And that's like almost one thing that I now offer. It's like, hey, text me anytime. A founder has texted me while we were on this, you know, on this uh, interview, um, you know, when they send out an update, like actually, you know, don't have to read the whole thing, but reply saying like, this is awesome. Great job. You know, I feel like just doing some of these like table stakes, you'd be surprised. Like Kyle, you mentioned and talked about this a lot. Like a lot of investors out there have a ton of companies that they're invested in. They're sitting on a lot of these boards. So some of these like kind of basic support functions, I feel like a especially as an angel, you can just provide a ton of value to, uh, you know, founders from with. 
Yeah, the money multiplier is a smart answer from Colin. The money multiplier is a win-win. If you align with the founder on the sorts of investors, angels, or, or venture guys they'd like to have in the game, and then you reach out to those folks with a really good deal, back to brand building. You're yeah. sending great deals to people. Ultimately, good deals are going to come back your way. So a, a total win-win scenario. Yeah, Marty here, uh, Marty Madrid also says, getting someone else to write a check. Our friend Bruno, who we <laughs> featured before, says, doing my taxes. Okay, I haven't heard <laughs> of that one um, before, but any of these other ones, uh, I don't know if any of these other ones stand out. Morgan says, waiting for someone to say, introduce me to someone else who has also wrote a check. <laughs> Um, so cool. Um, all right. We've got one more, uh, tweet to feature and get, uh, Kyle's take on. So I'm going to share it right now. Uh, Colin, you want to read this tweet from Carolyn? Yeah. Founders, do you text with your investors prefer to keep communication to more formal platforms? I, well, I'm like the first reply there. So I says, I love text. Oh, personally, wow. Look, there you are. <laughs> love it. Kyle, Kyle, what do you, uh, what do you think? Text is great. Text gets you outside of email inboxes that are at a fever pitch. So I text frequently, calls after hour frequently, Slack channels frequently. Absolutely. So I like this question because I feel like nowadays, you know, when you start working across different organizations, right? Like every organization is different, right? Like some people, some are more email based, Slack based, right? Text, WhatsApp, right? And as an investor, you start, you know, having to deal with all these different people and they're like, oh, let me add you to this Slack or, or whatever it might be. But I do agree. I feel like text is always, uh, you know, I always joke like, you know, if, if, you know, if you email me and I don't respond, you know, text or call me. And if you don't have my phone number, it's probably for a reason. <laughs> so cool well um i think uh, that about brings us to the end uh kyle if folks want to uh follow you on uh on social should they follow your linkedin twitter where can they go to learn about everything that you're up to uh both are good twitter is better uh all right LinkedIn twitter is in my linkedin isn't my favorite place i'm spammed incessantly and twitter i think <laughs> is a magic trick and i think the ability with Twitter to follow people, add value to conversations and unlock DMs is a great, great way to get connected to interesting people you might not be able to connect with otherwise. So huge fan of, of how you can leverage Twitter to, to build relationships. And that's probably the best way to reach me. Cool. And we'll uh, we'll drop a link to uh, CapGains, uh, the company you co-founded and anything else uh, that we mentioned in the show notes. So Kyle, really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thank you, Kyle.